Thank you, Jackie. Well, that passage of scripture is so relevant to where we're going to be in Genesis today, chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. You're going to be talking about faith alone and seeing what Noah had to deal with in his generation. In his book, Faith That Endures, Ronald Boyd McMillan tells the story of a number of conversations he had with Wang Mingdao, one of China's most famous church pastors of the last century. First time we met this famous and persecuted Chinese pastor, they had the following interchange. Young man, how do you walk with God? I listed off a set of disciplines such as Bible study and prayer to which mischievously... Uh, he retorted, wrong answer. To walk with God, you must go at walking pace. The words of, Mang, uh, of Wang Mingdao touched me to the core. How can I talk about the Christian life as walking with God when I so often live it at a sprint? Of course, we run with perseverance the race marked out for us, but we may fail to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Jesus is inviting me to walk with him. Too often I find myself running for him. There's a difference. On another visit, Boyd McMillan asked Wang Wang Mingdao about his 20-year imprisonment for proclaiming Jesus in China. That cell became a place of unchosen, unhurried time for Mingdao. There was nothing to do but to be in God's presence which he discovered was actually everything. Boyd McMillan summarizes what he learned from Wang Mingdao. One of the keys to faith, to the faith of the suffering church, God does things slowly. He works with the heart. We are too quick. We have so much to do, so much in fact we never really commune with God as he intended when he created Eden, the perfect fellowship garden. For Wang Mingdao, persecution or the cell in which he found himself was the place where he returned to quote-unquote walking pace, slowing down, stilling himself enough to commune properly with God. Isn't that fascinating? You know, some of us, it takes God uh, bringing illness our direction, doesn't it? To get us to slow down, to hear his voice, to go to a walking pace or a lying down pace, perhaps. But wouldn't it be nice if God didn't have to do those things to get our attention, right? Leading up to Easter and now preparing for the revival services, I'm keenly aware that I am running for God instead of walking with Him. Over the past several years, you know, God has been prompting me to, about a Sabbath rest. I've been hearing about it in different um, leadership uh, seminars that I'm a part of and how important that is. And that's different than a day off, by the way. There's a day off from work when there's a Sabbath day of rest, and it's a day each week where I spend time reflecting on God and sitting in His presence and perhaps walking with Him. And I have to confess to you that I have not accomplished a weekly Sabbath rest yet. It's hard. I just keep running for God instead of walking. Satan wants nothing more than for me to be distracted and running for God. When I'm doing that, I'm not really communing with Him. And our culture is such that we are distracted even as followers of Jesus Christ. We're so busy doing, doing, doing that we never spend time just being with God. 
we're not really walking with God. We're not pursuing holiness and righteousness. Our family, friends, and coworkers would probably not characterize us as blameless. Noah stood out in his culture. He was different. His neighbors and the Lord recognized his character, as we'll see today. He was not influenced by the culture of his day, but tried to influence them. And we have to ask ourselves the question that Noah probably asked himself, and it's our big question today. Am I influencing others or being influenced by them? We're going to see that played out in this passage today, but let's just commit it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, we just come to you today, and we confess that too often we are just busy, busy, busy. We're just doing, doing, doing. We don't even take time to, to rest in you. Lord, if we're honest, we don't even take time to pray. We don't take time to read your word. And sometimes we don't even take time to gather together with other believers. We just confess that before you today, Lord God. And we pray that you would transform us. That you would help us to learn what it means to be, uh, to, to commune with you, to be at a walking pace with you, to be able to rest in you, to hear your voice, that you might transform us. That, Lord, we might pursue holiness and righteousness. And so today, through your word, would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you remove anything that reflects on me so that everyone can reflect on you? And so we just commit this time to you now as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see two points today. Verses 9 and 10 is Noah's faith. Verses 11 and 12 is earth's folly. So faith and folly. Look at verses um, 9 and 10 with me if you would. In Genesis chapter 6. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, if you see the first part of verse 9, this is the account of Noah. That's the third toledot. And in, in, we have a bunch that we have throughout Scripture um, here in Genesis. And this is the account or origin of Noah's line. So we're going to be learning about his line. And it's going to encompass four chapters that are pretty significant because it talks about the flood narrative. It's going to take us a while to get through this flood narrative um, because it's four chapters long. After this introductory origin statement, we see Noah's character before God and with others. We see that here. First, before God, it says that he's righteous. And this is the first time this Hebrew word is used in the Bible. And it's only used of Noah in the book of Genesis. So that's, that's significant, right? He's righteous. It's the only time, first time it's been used. Only time it's used in Genesis is of Noah. And so it can be defined as faithful. Hamilton states that, that um, Noah was habitually righteous. That's a good thing. When we think about habitual things, sometimes it's not always a positive thing. This was for Noah. He was habitually righteous. Now, that speaks of his character. It was also who he was, mind, body, and soul. He wasn't someone different at home and then uh, at, at the public, in the public square. So for us, it's like he, he wasn't different at home and then at work or whoever he was hanging around with. He followed the Lord in every area of his life. He was concerned about honoring God and following his commands. Uh, Warren Wearsby says this, Noah's righteousness didn't come from his good works. His good works came because of his righteousness, his faithfulness. Like Abraham, his righteousness was God's gift in response to his personal faith. 
Both Abraham and Noah believed God's word and it was counted to them for righteousness as we see in Genesis and Hebrews. God is the one who called Noah righteous. It wasn't Noah who claimed this title or description for himself. He was just faithful. He was like, I know that I need to honor God. I know that I need to to worship him. I know that I need to serve him and I'm just gonna do that faithfully. That's what he was doing. And so God was like, "I, I recognize that. And so you were righteous. God's the one who gave him that title, that description. His faith in God affected every area of his life. It affected his thought life. It, it affected how he dealt with his wife and his children, how he raised them, how he conducted business, how he related to other people. And his relationships with other people were blameless. All of those relationships were blameless. And we see that here. That word blameless means perfect, whole, complete, sound, unblemished, having integrity, free from defect, moral uprightness. You know, when I think of this word, and it comes up in Scripture, the same Hebrew word, it it brings to mind the requirements for the sacrificial animal. And so uh, the same Hebrew word is used in Exodus 12, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 10, and Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 and 6. Here's two of those verses. Exodus 2 or 12, 5 says this. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. There's the Hebrew word blameless. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Then in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words. If someone's offering is a fellowship offering, also known as a peace offering, and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present uh, before the Lord an animal without defect. So blameless. Again, meaning whole and perfect, complete, sound, unblemished. Waltke says this, blameless denotes to abstain from sin, not to be without sin. That's an important thing. God was not saying of Noah that he was perfect without sin. He's just saying, you know, you're abstaining from sin. Um, And so when he was tempted, my guess is, is that he didn't always give in. But that's not to say that he was sinless because we, he's human, right? And we're all born with this want to to have our own way. His neighbors could not find anything to accuse him of that would point to unrighteousness, evil, or corruption. And so he probably would have been labeled a goody two-shoes, which just means that he was uncommonly good, right? He probably got that label stuck on him, even though maybe it wasn't around, that label wasn't around back then. I like what Walton says. His righteousness and blamelessness is in comparison to the people of his time. It does not generally indicate one's absolute righteousness or blamelessness relative to God's standard standards, but indicates one's status on the human scale. That's an important point, right? He's righteous and blameless compared to the rest of his culture. But compared to God's perfect standard, he's still a sinner. So that's important. That's an important distinction there. Because Noah was righteous in God's sight and his conduct was blameless with his peers, it was evident that he walked with God. His righteousness and integrity were manifested in his walking with God, as Kyle and Dillich say. We see the spiritual legacy of Seth's line through the, through the phrase, walked with God. We know that Enoch walked with God. He was Noah's great-grandfather. In fact, Enoch's walk with God was so profound that he escaped death, right? He is the fellow that just, he, he, he didn't exist anymore. <laughs> he didn't say he died. He just, God took him to heaven. That's how profound his walk with God was. Noah's walk with God meant that he would escape the judgment of the flood. So in just several more generations, there's this other guy who's walking with God, and he's going to escape um, 
you know, the destruction of the world. While nothing is said about Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, and Lamech, Noah's father, about them walking with God, it's apparent that they passed down that spiritual legacy since Noah walked with God. And so we see this incredible spiritual legacy down through Noah. And then next, we see the generation is, the next generation is identified. Noah's sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, these three guys were going to be responsible to repopulate the earth after the flood. That's pretty significant. I hope that they were righteous and blameless in their culture as well, that Noah was passing down that spiritual legacy to them. The order in which Noah's sons are listed is based on their importance for biblical history and not their birth order. Were you aware of that? Most of the time, right, they're, they're putting them in the order that they're born. But here, Shem, Ham, and David, that's not the order that they were born. Japheth is the oldest. We know that because of Genesis 10, 21. It says, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. And then Shem's the middle son. And then we see in Genesis 9, 22, and 24 that Ham is the youngest. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son, there it is, youngest son, had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So the biblical history is important, though. In chapter 11 of Genesis, we see the origins of Shem. That's another totally dot. And it's through Shem's line that Abraham's born. And, of course, we know way down further past Abraham, in his line, Jesus is born. So this is the importance of why Shem is listed first. Noah's faith is invaluable model for us as we relate to God and others. And so there's some application for us today in just these two verses. The first is this. God is pleased when his people live in a right relationship with him and others. We think about our relationship with God. In most cases, if I ask someone if they are uh, good with God, they would probably answer yes. Yeah, I'm good with God. If I asked them that they were going to go to heaven, they would probably say yes. When I asked them what standard they believe uh, they are good with God or going to heaven, it inevitably centers around them being a good person and God being loving. Now, certainly God is loving, but he's also just. And he does both of those perfectly at the same time. Loves and judges. But... um, See, we were born with a sin problem. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the human condition. We are sinners wanting our own way. The good person test lets us know that we're not really good people according to God's standard. Just five, five of the ten commandments can get us in, into trouble already. And God's Word tells us if we fail at one, it's as though we failed at, we've uh, committed all of them. I would guess that most of us have lied at some point in our lives or taken something that hasn't belonged to us, even if it was small. Or maybe we've used God's name as a cuss word. Or While we maybe haven't committed adultery or murdered, we have looked at someone with lust. And Jesus says it's as though you've committed adultery with them. Or if you hate someone in your heart, it's as though you've murdered them. So you see, that's that's five of them, and we've already failed. So we're not a good person according to God's standard. We're a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the great thing. 
God had a plan. Jeremiah 31.3 says this, The Lord appeared to us in the, in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. God's like, hey, I want to draw you in. I want you to be in right relationship with me. Noah was experiencing that. God's great love for us compelled him to provide a way for us to overcome our human condition of sinfulness. His plan was to send his son, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to take our punishment for sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 22 tell us this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was born into this world, <clears throat> not a sinner. Sinless, perfect. He lived a perfect life here on earth. And that's why he's the only one that could take our punishment for sin. And he did that when he died on the cross. Romans chapter 3, I want to go back there. Verse 23, we're familiar with that one. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But I want you to hear the rest of the verses, 24 to 26. Here's what it says. I'm going to start with verse 23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's God's free gift to us of grace, something that we don't deserve. And then it goes on, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's how we have forgiveness of sins and are saved. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That's God's love and justice combined. He said, I, I'm doing this, and it's through Jesus' blood, and I love you, and I want you to be in relationship with me. So I sent Jesus to die. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us this. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so Noah was saved from the impending flood because of his faith in God. There wasn't anything he did to earn it. It was God's gift to him because of his faithfulness. He wasn't being influenced by those around him, but attempted to influence them. And we can be saved from eternal death by having faith in Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross. And that's our first next step today, is to accept God's grace gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to make that decision today. If you've never made that decision, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And, and if you've never done that, I encourage you to pray after me today. And then make sure to mark that box or that circle on your communication card so that I can get in contact with you. But here's that simple prayer. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've chosen to do wrong. I've turned my back on you. Thank you for sending Jesus. to take my punishment for sin. I choose to be saved today and to experience your eternal life. I ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. I hope that you prayed that prayer today if, if you've never done that before. And again, if you're joining us online, send me an email at office at Church. I want to rejoice together with you in that decision today. You see, we can't live in a right relationship with God without Jesus. And the same is true concerning relationships with others. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living in us to help us in our relationships. I want to read Philippians chapter 2. I've got to get way back here. Verses 12 to 16. This is what God's Word says. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, and a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. This is important. That's in our relationship with others. And I think selfishness is perhaps the key to every sin, and selfishness hurts every relationship that we have. So I want you to take a moment and just think about the last conflict you had with someone, whether it was your spouse or a child, a neighbor or a coworker, or maybe somebody else. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, the conflict probably happened because one or both of us wanted our own way. It was a sin of selfishness. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 tells us this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And that ah, convicting, isn't it? It, it? We get into quarrels and fights because we want our own way. And then God doesn't answer our prayer because we say, hey, um, can you just you know, like eliminate that person? <laughs> wrong motives. Can you take that person out? <clears throat> I recently watched uh, a video on, uh, of a YouTuber and his wife who shared that they had been alcohol-free for around two years. And they said, we just haven't shared it with, with, with you all yet, their YouTube community, but they felt like now was the time. And they talked about how consumption of alcohol is culturally accepted and perhaps encouraged. It's this whole idea that if, you're, if you aren't drinking alcohol, then there must be something wrong with you. Guess what? There's something wrong with me. Right? And they realized that the times that they experienced conflict in their marriage was when they were drunk. <clears throat> and so they said, we're going to eliminate the thing that's causing a conflict in our marriage. And they got rid of alcohol. Or two or a little over two years, alcohol-free. And they're teaching their children the same thing. I think that's incredible. I don't think these, this couple are Christians. But they identified what needed to go in order that the relationship might be restored or maintained. That takes a lot of guts. Are you currently struggling in a relationship with someone? Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a coworker. Will you willingly take time to do some self-evaluation to determine if you're wanting your own way? That's not easy to do. 
It's not easy to admit it. But once we do, that's the first step in, in eliminating it. So this is the second next step today is to ask the Lord to review any selfishness I'm experiencing in any relationship and then confess that before him. Conflict can be resolved when we acknowledge the part we're playing in it. It can also be resolved when we pray for the other person or persons that are involved. And it's also important to go to that individual and ask them to forgive you for being selfish. There's another principle from these two verses that's important, and it's this. Faith is possible even if it's done alone. We, We come to God and are saved by faith alone, but there are times when it feels like we are living out our faith alone. See the double meaning for the title today? <laughs> Noah certainly experienced that as he remained faithful in a corrupt and violent world. He had to determine if he would influence others or be influenced by them. And the same is true of us for t- uh, today. It may seem like everyone else around you is choosing the things of this world Perhaps you're struggling to find other people who are pursuing holiness like you are. There are family members, friends, co-workers, and fellow church attenders who act a different way depending on the crowd they're hanging out with. And I want to encourage you to remain faithful. It's possible. This isn't an impossibility. Everything's possible with the Lord. We can remain faithful even when everyone else isn't. And it doesn't matter what age you are what gender, what race, what nationality. Every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit living in us to empower us to remain faithful. You're not alone. Now, Elijah thought he was. Do you remember that story? Let me read it for you. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put uh, your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint... Hazael, king of Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him." So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And so we see here, Elijah felt like he was living out his faith alone. God shared with him that that he had reserved 7,000 in Israel who had remained faithful. And then God directs Elijah to Elisha. 
He provided someone to walk together with Elijah so that he didn't feel isolated and alone. Noah had the support of his family, his wife, his sons, and his daughter-in-laws. And if you're feeling like you're living out your faith alone, be encouraged that there are others who are feeling the same way. And so here's the third next step today, and that's to ask the Lord to connect me with at least one other person who's remaining faithful. He'll do that. Iron sharpens iron. Noah was righteous and blameless, but the rest of the earth was not. Look at verses 11 and 12 then in Genesis chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so we see here earth's folly. We see the word earth and corrupt repeated three times in these two verses. The people were obviously corrupt, and their corruption and violence had corrupted the earth. God had to destroy both the animate and inanimate objects because of this corruption. And this word corrupt is used three times in these two verses to highlight how bad it had become. Last week we learned that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, talking about humanity, was only evil all the time. And then we see this word violence that comes up. Golden Gate says this, humanity was de- has devastated the earth by filling it with violence or violation. It is the first use of the verb fill since chapter 1, verses 22 to 23 and verse 28. God had commissioned human beings to fill the earth, and they had filled it all right, but not as he has commissioned. Right? They were supposed to populate the earth, but here they're not just populating the earth, but they're also corrupting it and all kinds of violence. They're filling it in a way that God didn't really design. And the violence that's being identified here involves threatening other people and probably physically hurting them too. And it was all motivated by selfishness. And then we see history repeating itself. Every generation is looking forward to Christ's return. Every generation is convinced that the time is drawing near based on the corruption and violence that we see. Over the past couple of years, it seems like corruption and violence are are running wild in our culture. The protests and violence that continue to happen across our nation is difficult to comprehend aside from understanding biblical history and the end times. The political unrest is greater than I can remember in my lifetime. The social unrest is hard to watch and hear about all the time. The quote-unquote canceling of our freedoms is alarming. But don't be disheartened. There is hope. Jesus is coming. Listen to what the gospel writer Matthew says. It's in uh, chapter 24, verses 36 to 41. This was important. Jesus is talking with his disciples and encouraging them to remain watchful. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the day, uh, days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. In the, in the days of Noah, that's how it's going to be at the end of times. Right? Corruption and violence will cover the earth. 
people will be thinking about evil all the time. Does that sound like our culture today? I think it's pretty close. As we review this morning, how is your relationship with God and others? Are you remaining faithful? As a body of believers, we need to remain faithful even if we have to do it alone. And we have to ask ourselves that question, am I influencing others or being influenced by them? So often we're so busy running, running, running that we might forget what God looks like or what he feels like, right? And in Executive Edge newsletter, management consultant Ken Blanchard retells the story of a little girl named uh, Shia. And uh, when Shia was four years old, her baby brother was born. Here's what he says. Little Shia began to ask her parents to leave her alone with the new baby. They worried that, like most four-year-olds, she might want to hit or shake him. So they said no. Over time, though, since Shia wasn't showing signs of jealousy, they changed their minds and decided to let Shia have her private conference with the baby. Elated, Shia went into the baby's room and shut the door, uh, but it opened a crack enough for her curious parents to peek in and listen. They saw little Shia walk quietly up to her baby brother, put her face close to his and say, Baby, tell me what God feels like. I'm starting to forget. Have you grown older and forgotten God? It's not too late to return to the one who created you. Jesus taught that to enter the kingdom of God, we must simply receive it like a little child. And so the longer we're alive and the longer we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we can run the risk of not remaining faithful, forgetting what God feels like, right? We can recapture those feelings and remain faithful by slowing down, going to a walking pace with God. And so as we just allow the Holy Spirit to kind of let that sink into our hearts and minds, would you just bow your heads with me? And as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, Lord, we come to you.